Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Islamophobia is everywhere. It's a narrative and history woven so deeply into our everyday lives that we don't even notice it in our education, how we travel, our healthcare, legal system and at work. Behind the scenes, it affects the most vulnerable, at the border and in prisons. Despite this, the conversation about Islamophobia is relegated to microaggressions and slurs. At best, we see it as an individual moral failing to be condemned, though amongst the political elite, Islamophobia is more likely to enhance than hinder careers. Entangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia the newest book in our Outspoken by Pluto series, Sahima Manzor Khan scrutinises not just what Islamophobia is, but what it does. Islamophobia not only lives under the skin of those who it marks, but it is an international political project designed to divide people in the name of security in order to materially benefit global stakeholders. Well, it's a real privilege to be joined on the show today by Sahima to talk about a number of the issues covered in the new book and to get her thoughts as well on the hugely popular Trojan Horse Affair podcast and the discourse that has been emerging recently around the refugee crisis caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As ever, podcast listeners can get 50% off the book, Tangled in Terror, through plutobooks.com. You just have to use the coupon podcast at the checkout. Okay, without any further ado... Here is Sahima Manzor Khan on Radicals and Conversation. Well, Sahima, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really lovely to have you on the podcast. And congratulations on having the book published, Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia. It's out now with Pluto Press. Uh, it's in our Outspoken by Pluto series. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really wonderful addition to the series. I'm sure people that have picked up other books in that series will want to read this, and I, and I hope so, particularly after our conversation today. Um where did the idea for the book come from? Was it like a logical step for you based on the work that you've been doing up until this point? Or was it a bit of a departure? You know, will people picking it up see a continuity with, you know, your poetry, for instance? Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the congratulations. And yeah, I think with the book, I guess a lot of my poetry did deal with these themes already in terms of the reality of what it means to experience being criminalized on the basis of your identity, being racialized as Muslim in Britain. And even, you know, I had poems that did deal specifically with things like the British values, counter-extremism agenda. But I think that the book offered the opportunity to really like rigorously analyze the different discourses that I think in poetry you can you can speak to and you can disrupt, but you don't necessarily get that space to really break it down with an evidentiary basis and to I suppose, provide like a really useful um, analytical framework to then look at how Islamophobia manifests and how we might resist it. So yeah, it's not a hu I wouldn't say it's a huge departure, but I would say it's a very different approach. Um, and I hope one that feels quite, yeah, useful for people. Mm. So yeah, the book is, is called Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia. What are some of the common narratives then that we tend to hear around Islamophobia? And I suppose, how does your book then uh, interject with a different perspective? Yeah, so I think, you know, even with the idea of writing a book about Islamophobia, I was very aware that in the mainstream, conversations around Islamophobia have tended to focus on the fact that, you know, there are parliamentary attempts to define Islamophobia. You've kind of had conversations around, is the media Islamophobic? You know, um, does Islamophobia exist within the Tory party? We need investigations and all of this kind of thing. So it tended to be, in my opinion, 
a conversation very focused on the kind of definition um, in a legislative framework of what Islamophobia is. Mm. And then on the other hand, you kind of have, you know, infrequent outrages about comments that, let's say, you know, when Boris Johnson called women who wear niqab uh, bank robbers or letterboxes, you kind of have this outrage that that recognises that, you know, this is an Islamophobic form of verbal harassment or whatever you might call it. And I guess after Brexit, you have things like people talking about the hate crime spike that Muslim women in particular face. So all of those things were there, but I kind of felt like in every case, the way that Islamophobia was talked about was was very reductive because those things to me are very surface level manifestations of Islamophobia. They're the kind of tip of the iceberg. And I think what was missing in those conversations was, okay, well, you know, what is the context you have to have created to enable people to even, you know, voice slurs like that or to direct uh, anger and hatred in ways that manifest on the bodies of Muslim women? Like what, what context have to exist for that to happen? And so for me, that was then a question of looking historically um, and not even just in terms of like 20 years of the war on terror but going even further back than that and Mm. thinking about you know what ideological bedrock I suppose has to exist but also why it exists and I think that was one of the things I felt was really missing in conversations around Islamophobia they sometimes kind of just talk about like a a random hatred you know a moral deficiency some people are just bad and mean and Islamophobic and, and with that there's no real analysis because there's no real motive and I think what I wanted to do with this book was really say actually Islamophobia is very beneficial for states it enables them to justify a lot of security policies and for corporations it enables there to be you know a really profitable industry in terms of selling surveillance technologies or selling you know arms or any number of things that are justified in the name of defending states or borders or the world from a Muslim threat so yeah, I just felt that the the kind of standard narrative is very basic um, and mm. misses a lot of the the points that I think help us then organise and direct resistance. Mm, yeah, I guess in that sense, the individualising of like racist acts, you know, slurs and whatnot is misguided, but also then actively unhelpful. Uh, it's an obscuring thing to sort of focus overly on these manifestations of something deeper. Absolutely. I think it means that we then don't hold accountable any of the institutions and the structures that actually actively cultivate Islamophobia. I think it's a really clever diversion. You know, not that it's necessarily, you know, a conspiracy, but I I think Mm. we are diverted to focus on individuals rather than structures. So, I mean, you write in the book that Islamophobia is one strategy of a colonial world system that was built over, you know, a period of 500 or so years. And the empire, the British Empire, is obviously no more uh, in name. But, you know, would you say we've left the colonial world system in which Islamophobia operates behind or or is it still ongoing, you know? Well, yeah, this is an interesting question, isn't it? Because I think that the more research that I did into Islamophobia, the, the more difficult it becomes to really draw a clear line between, you know, where colonialism ends and mm. uh, the world that we're in now. And that was really interesting to me because I think... I don't only mean that from the ideological perspective in the sense that one of the parallels I really try to draw is that throughout the 17 and 1800s, you have thinkers, philosophers, you know, all sorts of different um, mouthpieces producing the knowledge that then comes to justify racism. So, you know, people who are Enlightenment philosophers coming up with the the notion of race and kind of demarcating different races Mm. or, um, you know, scientists saying that they're measuring skulls and they're figuring out, you know, which races are lesser or, you know, have greater intellect, etc. And I think the parallel I tried to draw in terms of 
that construction of race as an ideological tool is really clear to see today in the sense that you have criminologists, psychologists, media outlets, uh, politicians, and think tanks and, you know, and other places all producing different types of knowledge, research, you know, quote unquote evidence that does the same thing when it comes to Muslims, creating this idea of, you know, Muslims are people who speak in this way, who behave in this way, who exhibit these cultural defects, who have a a propensity to violence. And you'll be able to determine who they are by the language that they speak or the places that they um, live or the clothes that they wear. And so in the ideologies that underpin colonialism, Uh, You saw that happening and you see that happening today. And then the other parallel was that in both cases, doing that, that ideological construction of race has material benefits. Um, And, you know, we obviously the the occupation and domination of lands across the world and the pillaging of resources through empire. But then today, really, you see the same thing through the war on terror. You have that imperialist kind of extraction of resources. You know, people can think of the war in Iraq, but other places across the world too. And I think you have these other streams of revenue that Islamophobia also um, produces, which are very much colonial in the sense of if you're selling arms and buying arms, uh, drone warfare, but then also these kind of broader global industries of security technologies, um, or even things like the fact that, you know, there's a commercial value that the prevent policy has. It's actually the research, the report, the kind of legislation itself is sold as a product to other governments. And Mm. I think that's really fascinating. And maybe it's not as explicit or tangible as, you know, colonialism in the ways that we think about, you know, one country physically dominating or militarily dominating another, even though we do see that also today. But there are also these other ways in which I think it produces the same or indeed like stems from the same root um, that colonialism in general has. And so that was the reason I really wanted to trace that history because I think it isn't necessarily useful to just say that Islamophobia sprang up after 9-11. When we kind of have that broader view, you're able to tie things together and make connections. Because I suppose the other thing to say is that, you know, the, the narratives we see today around Muslims as threats, Muslims as patriarchal, etc., they all, you know, you can see that same rhetoric in writing from the 17 and 1800s and, and even to some degree earlier than that. So I really felt that that deserved time and space because that I feel would help us in our resistance in the sense that you know we have to actually go deeper to the very roots of like where these ideologies stem from and why they are needed in the first place. Mm. Oh, there's a huge amount to touch on there I mean I found yeah the point in the book where you said like prevent has almost been like trademarked and like sold as a product to other you know countries fascinating and disturbing but um, wild what you were saying there about like you know how pseudosciences like phrenology have been out of fashion for a very long time but the underpinning assumption of like innate racial characteristics seems very much still in evidence you know in dominant sort of ideology of like white supremacy when it comes to muslims and islam um One thing that is just interesting to add to that point, because I do feel it kind of muddies the water when it comes to Islamophobia, is, you know, people kind of feeling that, well, how can we talk about a racism when Muslims are a religious grouping? They're not a race. And so I think it is that really interesting way in which the language of race has sort of been re-articulated today instead as culture or we talk mm. about ideology. And I think when it comes to Muslims, you do see the the interesting conflation of all those things. So, you know, it's this idea that there's a Muslim culture or there's a Muslim, you know, or indeed religion, and that that's the thing that marks Muslims as different. But in, in each case, if you look at the way it's actually spoken about, it does just re-articulate exactly that logic of racialization that you just said. Mm. 
Well, we'll go into what you've you've touched on in terms of like prevent and counter extremism and and all of that uh, in a minute, maybe. But um, one thing that's obviously dominating the headlines at the moment is uh, the situation in Ukraine. Mm. Um, and I think you know, given that you wrote this Guardian piece a few weeks ago, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the reaction, I guess, in in Britain to mm. the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the crisis uh, that's inevitably followed. I saw like a figure today saying something like four million people have been displaced. Um, and obviously, we would all agree that refugees fleeing Ukraine should be welcomed into this country and indeed right. other countries without question or hindrance. But you made the interesting point in that Guardian piece that there's still this seam of Islamophobia that runs through the discourse around Ukraine, particularly when we compare it to like other wars uh, and other refugee crises. Um, could you yeah, say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure people have seen on t- social media, you know, different clips of the kind of language that's been used to exceptionalize what, what's happening in Ukraine. And there's been talk of, you know, but the this is a civilized country where this war is happening or, you know, these refugees, they're, they're blonde and they're blue eyed. And for these reasons, it's implied, you know, we must humanize and we must kind of really take seriously the violence that's being inflicted. And I think that's where the problem comes in, because in an ideal world, I think we would have this same level of care and uh, concern for every place that faces occupation or war or where people are displaced. But I think what was really fascinating about watching the, not only the rhetoric that's developed, but the fact that, you know, the government in the UK, for example, is is able to offer £350 to people for housing refugees from Ukraine. I think it shows us a number of things because not only is there that element of we can humanise um this particular group of people, but I think that really reinforces the fact that Muslim people and I suppose places associated with Muslim majority populations are really seen, I think, to be naturally prone to violence. And for that reason, we don't really need to bring a lens of empathy. And interestingly, obviously, what that also does, it absolves Western intervention as a form of war. Because I think in the case of Ukraine, we understand that the reason people are fleeing is that there is a perpetrator. The perpetrator is of the Russian state. Whereas I think in the case of a lot of Muslim countries, the perpetrator is, you know, the UK or America or Mm. um, I suppose nation states that try to absolve themselves and not be portrayed as you know, tyrants or occupiers, but instead as, you know, uh, democratizers and liberators and civilizers. And so I think that becomes very clear through the discourses from Ukraine, but also just going back to what I was saying about, you know, the way that lots of things that we kind of were told were impossible in terms of, you know, we can't simply just let refugees into this country uh, willy-nilly, you know, we can't have an open border policy. And particularly when it comes to asylum seekers, there's a big conflation in the public imagination between Muslims and asylum seekers. And, you know, I I use a quote in the book from Michael Gove, who sort of talked about if we had open borders in Europe, it would be like hanging a sign welcoming terrorists into Europe. And I think that's fascinating because... (laughs) Once you suddenly have a set of refugees who we can contextualise and who we understand that the causes of displacement are not of their own making or indeed deserved, we can suddenly understand that, you know, border controls can be shifted. Um, They aren't, you know, innate and inevitable and necessary. And so there's also something in there to me that kind of speaks to the undercurrent, I suppose, of this book, which is that, you know, what's the alternative world we can imagine? And sometimes we're told, you know, borders can't fall overnight. You know, these things are simply too utopian, what you're asking for. And actually what we see in practice is that they ca- things can change overnight, actually, mm. where the when the will is there and when the political, I suppose, conscience is able to be articulated in a way that's convenient for the establishment. So, I mean, there's more you could probably say about this crisis and what it's revealing right now. Um, 
in terms of even like, you know, people showing solidarity and, and not being criminalized for that. And if we compare that to protests that we saw last year around what was happening in Palestine, you know, people were going into school with Palestinian flags and being reported to prevent. And, you know, today you have schools encouraging children to donate or raise money for Ukraine. And ostensibly, you know, these are both cases of occupation. These are both cases of people being persecuted in war. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting, the kind of double standards, I suppose, that are thrown up. And and those double standards are linked exactly to that discourse of colonialism and white supremacy that we we just spoke about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've mentioned prevent there. Um, it'd be good to talk a bit about that because, like many yeah. of our listeners uh, of this show, aren't actually based in Britain. About half, at last count, um, so they may not be that familiar with prevent. Could you say a little bit about what it is, when it was introduced, or kind of what it emerged out of, and and the impact it's had? Definitely, and I think this is actually important for people across the world because, like I said earlier, prevent is the basis on which many countering violent extremism um, policies across the world are based on. So. In the early 2000s, um, you know, you kind of have the government in the UK establishing its its counterterrorism policy and, and a, a part of the plans included how to counter nonviolent extremism. So there was this idea that actually prior to violence being enacted, there must be a way that we can preempt it. We can preempt it even happening. So that really requires um, the policing of nonviolent behaviours. And so this became known as prevent. That's what it's called now. And it was a policy in, in the early days that was really just encouraging people to kind of look out for signs that were very ambiguous that they may see, say, particularly in young people, in community groups. And, you know, from the very start, the way it was determined where the funding would be put was that it was based on local authorities with the highest concentrations of Muslim populations. So you see from the start that there's this direct um, correlation in the kind of logic of the policy that. Muslims need to be monitored, basically, for signs that they might be violent in the future. And so it's a preemptive, racialising, criminalising policy. But what's really kind of brought it to the fore in conversations in the UK is that in 2015, you then have this piece of policy actually become legislation. And what that does is it makes every public sector worker, so that's like 500,000 people in the UK, legally obliged now to look out for signs of radicalization amongst those that they work with. So that includes, you know, teachers monitoring students, doctors monitoring patients. Um, You know, if you're a librarian, if you're a counsellor, if you're a policeman, like in all these roles that fall under public sector, you're being asked to surveil on behalf of the state. And the thing that's really important about this, this policy is that the signs of radicalization come out of a report that has been classified by the government. It's a single study. Um, it's never been peer reviewed. And so you have hundreds of academics who, you know, have condemned this as completely unscientific, you know, a policy that is based on something that you wouldn't even base a research paper on, you know, it's like really, really problematic. But more than that, because the signs that come out of that report are so vague and ambiguous, in a way you would assume that anybody could end up being reported to prevent because signs include, for example, you know, questioning your identity, if someone's acting withdrawn or isolated, if they're, you know, changing friendship groups. And those are things that I think every single person listening to this podcast has probably exhibited at some point or another. But what's interesting is that a lot of research shows that where there's the broadest um, kind of discretion in the application of a law, you actually see the most um, racialized application because what mm. what happens is that people are being basically asked to kind of obey the 
the racial profiling that comes from the broader narrative. So where for 20 years, um, radicalization and terrorism have only been associated with Muslims in the public imagination. When you ask people to look out for signs of radicalization, they're automatically being encouraged, you know, implicitly to look in certain people. And so that's why you have, you know, the, the majority of those reported to prevent are Muslims, but even more interestingly, are children. It, it turns out that the majority of um, people being reported to prevent are under the age of 18, which is is really wild if you think about the fact that this is supposedly about stopping violence, because, you know, how many perpetrators of violence have been, you know, six or seven year olds, how many of them have been at school? So in a way, the critique of prevent is like endless, because even on its own terms, it fails. Um, we've even seen people who went through the de-radicalization scheme that um, prevent offers, which is channel, and still come out the other side and um, enact violence. So you kind of have on its own terms, it fails. But then even by our terms, I think, as people who, you know, are, are critical and you know anti-racist, it also fails because, just to give, a, I guess, another uh, angle of critique, 90% of those who were referred to prevent don't end up being put onto that de-radicalization scheme. And instead they're signposted to, you know, mental health services, Mm. social care, other kinds of educational support. And what you see from that is then, well, people are being criminalized based just on vulnerabilities. You know, should you have to go through a home office, a police scheme or, or institution simply because you're vulnerable Probably not. There should be other systems that can kind of take care. And I think in a way it actually reflects the fact that there's been such cuts to to social funding and to kind of the resources and support that actually would nourish people and help people. And instead what you have now is this very coercive system where not only are people criminalized for their vulnerabilities, but also if you look at some of the signs that crop up in different institutions, they include things like if somebody's critiquing prevent, that itself is a mm. sign of radicalization. If somebody's raising questions about wars in the Middle East, that could be a sign of radicalization. So you then see that there's also this very political angle where it's discouraging essentially dissent. And this doesn't only affect Muslims. And I think the potential of it is that this affects everybody. And we've even seen in recent years that some of the signs or ideas that are listed as potentially extremist or signs of future violence include things like the other year there was a, a leak of a piece of advice I think from police to teachers that that included um, extinction and rebellion that included anti-capitalism so you know if you have environmental activism and you have anti-capitalism itself being seen as these are signs of radicalization these are signs that people are going to perpetrate violence in the future you're essentially narrowing the field of like anything that can be articulated by people and then not be criminalized. So it's a really coercive situation. I think, you know, and again, for people across the world, this prevent policy is sold to governments. The USA's entire CV uh, policy is based entirely on prevent. And it's, you know, being used in aid projects. It's being used in China as an aid project. And we know that in China, you know, the Uyghur Muslim population are facing, um, you know, a genocide by some people's standards. So, I think that it's, it's yeah, it's definitely not just a British issue. Um, this is something that's global and very deliberately so. And obviously, as, as we mentioned earlier, it has commercial value. So it's <laughs> profitable, it's unscientific, it's racist. And even human rights organisations like Amnesty, you know, so mainstream, they've said that this is a complete violation of people's rights. And yet the government continues with it and in fact are attempting to reinforce it and reform it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, ridiculous reading in the book how like, uh, one of the risk factors in young people referred to perceiving religious or racial harassment, right. which seems both like gaslighting and a tautology because it's, I don't know, yeah. Um, I mean, one thing you mentioned there about how like this kind of pre-criminalization of people and what impact is all of this having then on like 
you talk about how there isn't this kind of wealth of examples of groups resisting Islamophobia because to try and organise resistance to something systemic like this is often effectively criminalised, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really important point because when, you know, in doing the research for the book, that was something that, you know, is a really important part of this series, I think, is is including examples where, you know, people are doing that really important organisation and work. And and I think a lot of the books are geared towards resistance. um, And this one obviously is as well. But what was interesting Mm. was that finding examples of organised resistance to Islamophobia are difficult exactly because of the just the reach of counter extremism in the UK. And I think that makes it really difficult for there to be organised resistance because immediately if you're kind of vocalising that what we stand for is, you know, opposing the government's legislation on terrorism or its legislation on extremism, you're already going to fall into the category of, well, hang on, doesn't that make you an extremist? That sets off those bells of radicalisation. So one of the examples I do use is the um, NGO CAGE. And, you know, this is an organisation who, by the media establishment and the political establishment, are derided as, you know, terrorist sympathisers, extremist aligned. And I think that tells you a lot that, you know, where you do have Muslims at the forefront of organisations that are attempting to support those who are affected by war and terror legislation and counter-terror legislation, they're already on the back foot because that puts you in the position of, you know, being deemed suspicious yourself. So it's a very coercive climate. And I think it's why we sort of need to really be building intersectional connections when it comes to Islamophobia, because Mm. ultimately this isn't only going to affect Muslims. And already we've seen a lot of this kind of counter-extremism and even counter-terrorism legislation used against other types of activists. Um, You know, you even think about the the Sunset 15 and the fact that their charges when they were trying to stop a deportation flight were terrorism-based charges. And I think what you start to see is that really anything can be called terrorism or can be called extremism where it doesn't suit the government. And I think that's a scary future to think about where activism is just being completely coerced and through the counter-extremism agenda as well, just to add, you know, even critical thinking itself is kind of coerced. That you, There's no spaces where young people can really raise these questions without being, uh, you know, having to police themselves or feeling that they can't really voice these thoughts and opinions. And, and that's a really, to me, that's effectively a police state. You know, that, that's such high levels of surveillance that it's not about, you know, CCTV cameras and, and wires. It's really about everybody being the eyes and ears of the state. And that's something that the, the police mm. say themselves with a lot of pride that, you know, that's what we want. We want everybody to be the eyes and ears of the police on the ground. Um, but that's obviously like a really draconian situation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'd be good to maybe talk a little bit about the recent history of anti-terror legislation, because, I mean, as you say, like one example of counter-terrorism policing powers, you know, stop and search. I think your statistic in the book is that 0.007% of (laughs) stops lead to terrorism convictions, despite, you know, this increasingly broad definition of the term. So if you accept the state's claim that these kind of laws or powers are aiming to prosecute terrorists, then they're failing dismally on their own terms. Exactly. So if it's not really about crime prevention, then what is the sort of the unstated intent? Yeah, could you could you say a bit about how how we're seeing this creep, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, so yeah, in the case that you just mentioned, that's particularly to do with people being stopped at borders coming in and out of the UK. So terrorism legislation, there's just like loads of pieces of legislation. It's kind of a, a long, long list. But I think to sort of say broadly, I think the key points about it are that terrorism, as you just mentioned, is, is defined so vaguely that so many things that I think ordinary people, when we think about counterterrorism, we'd assume that that sounds like a good thing, right? Like what we assume to be terrorism is violence and um, particularly acts of violence that affect everyday random people. 
but in truth, counterterrorism isn't really dealing with that. And, you know, one of the main routes that people end up being criminalized or, or convicted, sorry, um, through counterterrorism laws is, is usually for what's called preparatory acts for terrorism. Mm-hmm. And obviously that, again, sounds like, you know, people stockpiling explosives or something like that. But in reality, this is where people are convicted for usually to do with literature that they either have downloaded onto their laptop, that they've read, or even that they've written. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think people would be surprised to know that the majority of people convicted on terrorism related charges in UK prisons are there because of something that they read or something that they downloaded or that they wrote. And, you know, you have lawyers calling this terrorism by negligence. You know, this is like people who just have no idea that they would, would even have fallen under such legislation. And then, as you said, you know, you've got these this just mass stopping of people and I remember at one point I actually looked up and I didn't include it in the book, but 0.007 as a percentage you actually have more likelihood that you and the two officers who stop you at the border all share the same birthday than you do of being (laughs) um, convicted under this. Yeah. And I just think that's, you know, a really like really puts it in perspective, but as you said, you know, then what is the purpose? This clearly isn't stopping any kind of violence, but what I would say it does do is it enforces again, self-surveillance like with prevent in the sense that when, you know, just taking that schedule seven example, when you go to the airport as a Muslim, knowing that the chance is so high that you are going to be stopped and also being aware that anything really could be a sign of suspicion I think it enforces wider self-surveillance so you know being careful about what do you read you know should I download this onto my laptop should I not um you know should I talk about this should I not and in conjunction with that you have reported cases of entrapment right where people haven't done anything that falls under the very broad banner of kind of a terrorism related offense but then actually you have operatives of the state entrapping them so there's a case I use in the book of a man who ran an Islamic bookstore in Manchester and in the case where he's convicted the judge actually says you know it's a really difficult case to convict because there was no blueprint there was no plan of action and in fact the evidence against him was that he was approached by two undercover operatives who asked him a set of leading questions and the answers that he gave were then able to be categorized under one of these kind of vague broad um, terrorism charges so Realistically, I think this is just a case of social control. It's about the state being able to deter people from any type of political activism. And obviously it falls particularly hard on Muslims in the sense that we're racially profiled through it. But also, you know, that again is once you have built an apparatus like that, it can be um it can be operated at any time against anybody. And I think that's what's really fascinating about this, that I think a lot of terrorism and counterterrorism charges are accepted broadly by the wider population because we sort of just assume that it, it sounds like a good thing counterterrorism it has the kind of the moral argument in the name but in reality when we look at it you know even supreme court judges have said that the definition of terrorism is so broad in mm. the uk in particular that i say in the book showing solidarity with the stand said 15 technically could have got you to be seen as uh, supporting a a terrorist organization or a set of terrorists and and i think that's like yeah, it's really hard to kind of even convey the seriousness of that. At first, you almost have to undo and prove that the you know the moral ground is not with national security legislation, mm. and then you have to kind of make the case. So it's it's difficult. I think you're already on the back foot when we're talking about these things, but when you sort of break it down, I think you can see it's very much a surveillance state. Mm, yeah. 
yeah, it's interesting when you say in the book how um, obviously historically there's always been a domestic kind of police force and a lot of what we're seeing now with, uh, you know, counter-terrorism policing domestically, you know, has always been around, but it was just in Britain's colonies and yeah. and so on. And we think it's this new phenomenon, but it, but it really isn't. Well, yeah, because what was interesting when I was reading, you know, some of the research into terrorism laws was that they were sometimes talked about as, you know, this has set up a parallel criminal justice system in the UK because a lot of what terrorism laws also do, I suppose it's worth saying, are they make exceptions to other laws. So, you know, where usually you can't stop and search without suspicion under terrorism legislation, you can, you don't have to have reasonable suspicion. Or where you can't um, detain without charge for more than 48 hours, actually under terrorism legislation, you can. So there are all these exceptions that are made. What's interesting when I kept hearing that language around it's a parallel criminal justice system was that well actually there's always been yeah one rule in the colonies and one rule at home and I think when you start having you know people from former colonies in this country then you see that a lot of the language used in policing uh, you know in the 70s and the 80s when you have like Brixton riots, Toxteth riots is, is it bringing that language of social control and counterinsurgency right into the heart of Britain and British cities and kind of that's all from the beginning that conversation is because of the racialized nature of the people that it's being associated with and you even and there's a quote I think I use in the book that where you even have the the chief of police in the 80s kind of saying what we actually need to do is police for the sake of social control it isn't actually about the stated aims of you know keeping people safe this is now just about controlling populations and and yeah and, and that is just a colonial tactic so yet again I think the connection we see with colonialism yeah I think you gave an interview with Galdem recently where you explain why you used inverted commas around the words terrorist and terrorism mm. throughout the book. And I thought that was, you know, very interesting and on point. And I suppose you could extend that to words like security as well, because if exactly. we unquestioningly just absorb and regurgitate these terms, you know, it's they are ideological, aren't they? Um, Absolutely. And I think that, you know, sometimes having those kind of conversations about language can seem really abstract and like, what's that got to do mm. with reality? But the point that I tried to make throughout the book is that these ideological narratives have really direct material consequences on people's lives. And so to me, it is actually really powerful. And I invite everyone who reads the book and, you know, I'll invite everyone who's listening to this podcast now that if we all stopped referring to Muslim perpetrators of violence as terrorists and instead just called, you know, that's a Muslim perpetrator of violence or a Muslim person who has perpetrated an act of violence. And if we stopped referring to the state's violence as security, but instead talked about, you know, the brutalization, the kidnapping, the detention, the kind of coercion of people, what does even just changing our language then do to shift that broader narrative? And how does shifting that broader narrative change then how we think about the application of just the very simple logics of, you know, suspicion or looking out for signs of radicalization and that kind of thing? So I, I think that, yeah, for me, it's it's the fact that these ideological narratives have have really serious consequences on, on people. And, and, you know, I use testimonies throughout the book where I think you can see that and see how this isn't something abstract. This is something that really affects people's mental health, physical health, family lives. You know, that's really important uh, to me. And I think that if any of us kind of have any empathy or care about people, that's something that, that matters to all of us. Mm. I'd like to talk a little bit about, yeah, some of the, these impacts on the life of Muslims in Britain, I guess. Um, the constant feeling that you're kind of being... Islamic ideology is being linked to violence and terrorism as something inherent within it. Um, and then you kind of get that liberal sort of flip side to that coin, I guess, where, you know, Muslims who are perpetrating acts of violence are somehow not representative of, you know, the true or the real sort of Islam, that it's a misinterpretation of the Quran or something. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about like yeah. that liberal defense yeah, is yeah. quite common? 
No, I'm really glad that you raised that because I think, um, you know, it's, it's actually um, Aaron Kanani who I think says it so well mm. that, you know, whether you, yeah, whether whether it's that you say all Muslims are terrorists or you say, oh, no, no, no it's just a minority who've misunderstood it. In either case, the kind of outcome of either of those logics is that, well, all Muslims need to be surveilled because any one of them could be either a member of that minority um, or could be, you know, one of the people who've misinterpreted, quote unquote. Um, and I think also what's interesting with that liberal narrative is that it often comes from a wider discourse of kind of secularism, wherein there's this idea that religion is something that should be separated from the state and indeed that it is. But actually what you see through that narrative is this strange simultaneous sort of intervention into what religion is, what is the authentic mm. Islam, what's the kind of right interpretation of Islam. And you have this really confusing and slippery notion of like, okay, well, is a, an act of violence Islamically motivated if the person says that it is, or is it about us saying that they're Muslim? You know, are you Muslim enough for it to be Islamically motivated? And if we don't, um, uh, Talal Assad talks about this really interesting thing of like, you simultaneously have this idea that simply reading the Quran is like a sign of radicalization because they're just so, you know, motivated to follow this text unthinkingly. And at the same time, you have the idea that people misinterpret it. So actually, it's all about the interpretation. It's all about how people are reading it. And in either case, you know, the, the point he's making is that how do we determine what violence is religiously motivated and what violence is is not religiously motivated? And, and in either case, how does that then matter when it comes to convicting or criminalizing or sentencing people on the basis of it. And why I think that matters is that he sort of reveals, or to me what that reveals is that when we're talking about any type of violence as religiously motivated, what that language I think actually does is aim to depoliticize the violence because we assume that religion is something kind of difficult to talk about, kind of complicated. And also I think, you know, within the context we live in, it's, you know, if you adhere to religion, you're really adhering to an epistemology that is outside of Western modernity. And, you know, it's not really deemed to be intelligible, I suppose. And so what's interesting with that then is that even where the majority of, you know, and all intelligence services say this, the majority of Muslim perpetrators of violence have always vocalized and articulated their motives as political. So, you know, they'll they'll say that there are geopolitical motives usually, maybe it's in vindictive terms, but it'll often be talking about particular acts of the US government or the British government or particular kind of grievances. And then they all talk about this violence as being in response to that. But even where that's articulated as direct political motives, even where intelligence services have again and again said this, using the language of religion and using this idea of, you know, misinterpretation, interpretation, minority of Muslims and whatever else, it really just clouds and obscures that conversation. And I think what's crucial about that is then that we never have the really important conversation which I think we should be having around if we really want to prevent quote-unquote violence then we need to address those political questions and we need to think about what's causing and motivating violence and if individual non-state actors claim again and again that they're responding to state violence state-sanctioned violence whether that's you know global or local then isn't that maybe one of the best routes to addressing, you know, those individual acts of violence to actually redress foreign policy? And, and you know, after 7-7, you have a really interesting set of conversations that the government has with, you know, Muslim organizations, Muslim representatives. And again and again, what a lot of these people say is that, you know, foreign policy is really at the root of this. Like, we probably need to address Britain's foreign policy. And that's the one thing that the British government are unwilling to do. And so in, instead, they ramp up prevent and they say, no, we just need to criminalize and preempt violence um, and kind of say that the violence just stems from something innate in Muslims. So, um, sorry, I've taken your question in sort of a, a different direction, I think, than you intended. But I th yeah, I'd sort of that. those are the things that I think are really disguised almost by that liberal narrative. 
I think the reason that liberal narrative is seen as helpful is that it's quote unquote kind, right? It's like morally, it's benign. It's like, you know, Muslims are not to blame. We can't just, you know, they're good as well. They do nice things. And I think that's so, again, so, so it's such a diversion. It really does nothing to uh, deal with the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Mm. Yeah, I mean, mentioning Aaron Kunnani, I think you, you say in the text how he's right to suggest the only political act Muslims can perform without suspicion is rejection of their Muslim identity. Mm. Um, and there's, yeah, I th- we're all familiar with like the good immigrant, bad immigrant dichotomy, right. you know, and I suppose that operates transposed over into like the good Muslim and the bad Muslim uh, context. Well, exactly. Yeah. In a way, one of the things I wanted to talk about in the book was the direct impact on Muslims in terms of how you can be Muslim, because Mm. that's something that is really curtailed when there's this idea that, you know, being overly religious, whether that's in the way that you're read or, you know, like if you see somebody praying, we automatically imagine that that is actually also a sign that they kind of have a higher propensity or chance of being violent. And so in that sense, yeah, people, I think Muslims have to perform, you know, the good Muslim. And that often includes, you know, condemning acts of violence again and again and again. But it also includes things like, you know, I talk in the book, I don't know actually if I do, but, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when I was writing the book was that a lot of conversations even that Muslims have amongst ourselves include things like, you know, can we prove the contribution that Muslims have made to maths and science, right? And this real kind Mm. of feeling that if Muslims can just prove that Islam is actually, you know, has made contributions to modernity, that it is um, a source of good. You know, you used to have this narrative that was really predominant about Islam means peace. And you'd hear this slogan everywhere, Islam means peace. And, you know, in the Arabic, Islam does not mean peace to start with. But secondly, it was so interesting to me that we could only define Islam in relation to the violence that was assumed to be its defining feature. And I think Mm. that says a lot about the performance, basically, that Muslims are expected to do. And I think that's really troubling because, again, (laughs) a lot of these narratives and discourses and states that produce them claim to be secular and claim that that means Mm. that they make no interventions in religion. But then you have, you know, to give a really key example, the French government who, you know, are ardent that they are a secular government and that religion has no place um, in public life. But at the same time, last year or the year before, the French government produced this Republican Charter of Values that they asked all Muslim organisations to sign up to. But this charter is not, you know, neutral. This is a charter that kind of says, you know, critique of the state is treachery, essentially, you know, like really using this, this language of kind of like betrayal, Muslims as a fifth column and if their religion compels them to critique the state, then that is actually not okay. And so, you know, that's an intervention into people's faith and the manifestation of their religious beliefs in their kind of political thinking. But obviously it's not seen as that. And so I think that, yeah, that question of kind of the only acceptable Muslim being one who doesn't exhibit kind of adherence to Islam, I think we see also in the phenomenon of ex-Muslims, you know, you don't have this phenomenon with any other religion or group of people where they're defined by something that they're not. And instead, you have this platforming, though, of, of lots of people who, you know, have written, you know, really profitable books about their experience being Muslim and it's essentially you know a whistleblowing kind of performance where it's like as someone who was Muslim I can confirm how barbaric they are how patriarchal they are and you know all that does is justify and reinforce you know all the policies whether at borders um, domestically or internationally that are Islamophobic and I think that that they're a really good example of the fact that actually the, the the kind of best or you know most celebrated Muslims in the West are those who are really willing to just comply with Islamophobic narratives. And you even see that really early on in the war on terror, you have Rand, a military think tank in the US who produced this report kind of basically saying in quite clear terms that we need to fund and support 
Muslim organizations and groups who can produce what they call a quote unquote moderate version of Islam, but which they expand on, meaning a version that will be okay with our foreign policy uh, goals. And so you see this constant kind of hope to shape and intervene in what is acceptable what what the acceptable Muslim is and isn't. And, you know, as a practicing Muslim writing this book, that was something that was really serious to me too, because for me, writing this book was also, you know, a manifestation of my faith. It's like, I believe it's important to speak about justice. I believe it's important to reveal injustices. And actually when that's being intervened on and when that's being policed, essentially, that's that's really troubling. But, but it's not always seen as troubling because religion in of itself is troubling to the Western imaginary in a lot of ways. So that was something I wanted to also just yeah, explore. And it was, yeah, probably my favourite part of exploring in the book, to be honest, because it's something I don't think we do talk about a lot. Absolutely. I mean, I was going to say, you know, one of the sections I found in the book that was most interesting was when you talk about secularism, because I hadn't really considered it before. Yeah. And you write how it's, you know, and I'm quoting, often assumed as an inherently objective way of viewing the world and religion as its inverse. But secularism is born from a specific history and entangled in the project of constructing European white supremacy secular does not mean neutral. Do you want to say just a bit more about the yeah. history and the function of secularism? Because I, th- yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. No, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, it's the same for me. It's not something I had previously really questioned, but it's something I got thinking about just on a personal level when I'd be invited to talk about Islamophobia in, you know, anti-racist spaces and spaces mm-hmm. on the left. And people, I think, were really willing to engage with the idea of Muslims, um, you know, as racialized subjects. But then I would always sense a bit of unease, let's say, when I would kind of say, you know, is there somewhere I can pray or something like that? And I began to think about the way in which actually, you know, adherence to um, religiosity is still something that I think we're a bit squeamish about. We definitely see it as to some degree, you know, it's unmodern, it's, it's backwards, it's embarrassing. It's like, how can you be intelligent and religious? And I think that I just wanted to dwell with that thought for a moment, because if you really explore that, that is still a manifestation of that colonial association of, um, you know, religious others with being backwards, barbaric, unintelligent, you know, lesser. And so the, the, that kind of led me on the journey then to explore, well, you know, where does this idea of secularism come from? And what was fascinating was that it is stemming from the same discourses which are producing uh, the idea of race and that are racializing people. And some of the really interesting quotes that I came across were where, you know, because it's confusing in the West, because really what you have is Europe at the same time as it's kind of stating that what makes it superior is its secularism, its privatization of religion, um, you know, its neutrality of public space, at the same time as doing that, it's also sending Christian missionaries abroad to do a lot of the kind of soft colonialism, let's say. Um, and at the same time, it's it's saying that one of the things that makes Europe so advanced is its Christianity. So there's a lot of like confusion and conflation. And I think in the UK, you see that very clearly where the church and the state are so symbolically joined and both things are seen to be what makes Britain so great and so superior in values. So there's those elements. And, you know, a quote that I just wanted to mention is that, so I speak about um, this guy called Lord Cromer, who was, you know, a colonizer and kind of involved in different colonies, but particularly Egypt. And in his writings, he talks about the fact that even Christianity has stagnated in the Orient, by, by his uh, language, because it's been um, surrounded by forces that are against progression um, or that limit progression. And so there, I think, for the first time is where, at least in the book, the, from the examples that I use, where you see that there's this racialization of religion, that religion in the West can modernize, can secularize, can become kind of congruent with modernity. And you see that with the way that Christianity is talked about today in, in Britain, for example, that, you know, that's okay, it's, it's, it fits in. But actually, 
there's then this racialization of religion that if it's from the Orient, if it's kind of practiced in X, Y, Z way, then actually it's still backwards. It, it needs to be modernized. And there's some really interesting conversations I had that I fed into the book as well around kind of people who, whose research um, is on secularism on kind of how the idea of civilizing populations is also in parallel with the idea of, you know, secularizing populations to kind of bring them into modernity. And I think you see that then with the way that there's a lot of emphasis on kind of why do Muslims need to be so publicly Muslim? You know, can't can't this just be a matter of private conscience? You know, ideally, couldn't Muslims secularize Islam and that would be the way for them to enter modernity? And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of focus as well on things like hijab and things on like, you know, mm. public demonstrations of faith. And, you know, if you think about France in particular, obviously that's a huge um, issue, but even a lot of hijab and niqab bans across Europe, there's this idea that the reason we're banning this is because we're secular states and we're uncomfortable with public manifestations of religiosity. But actually the way that those pieces of legislation land are that they just directly target Muslim women in particular. And I think that's really interesting because it's like through this language of neutrality, liberal values and um, objectivity, you're basically justifying the discrimination against one particular group and you're still doing it on the basis that their beliefs are backwards and their way of living is incongruent with Europe um, and, and doesn't fit. And so I think for me, that was like really important to explore because it is still a manifestation of those discourses. And I think we, I kind of feel even, because there's a lot of conversations obviously these days about decolonizing, you know, knowledge or um, decolonizing many different things, but secularism is like the last bastion of that conversation, the kind of thing that's left standing because we don't really critique or question its colonial roots or connections. Um, not to say that it is a monolith either, right? Like that, that, I think that's the question I'm trying to raise is what even is secularism? Yeah, it was something really important for me to explore. Mm. I mean, there's a few things I'd like to touch on kind of off the back of that, I guess. Firstly, I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have also listened to the serial podcast, The Trojan Horse Affair. Mm. I mean, what you're saying about church involvement in cultural life, you know, including education, is completely normalised. And yet when an Islamic influence in schools is perceived, that's cause for alarm because, you know, Islam is seen as something foreign or un-British in some way. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, which has got to be, you know, one of the most listened to, talked about podcasts out there at the moment. Mm. Could you say a bit more about, you know, The Trojan Horse Affair and what it reveals about how Islamophobia operates uh, in this country. Yeah. I mean, so for, for listeners who don't know, I guess, you know, the Trojan Horse Affair in the UK was this case where there was a, a fake letter, a phony letter sent to the local council in Birmingham in the UK, um, kind of alleging that schools in Birmingham are being Islamized. You know, there are these Muslim teachers and governors who are basically radicalizing or Islamizing, what, you know, whatever this meant, because the language is ambiguous as well, um, but in a way that is kind of inappropriate for schools to do. And you know, as the Trojan Horse podcast really, you know, brilliantly explores, this is all a massive hoax. And yet the entire kind of political and media establishment are willing to go along with it. And on the back of that, you see new counter extremism policies come into place, huge scrutiny on schools, on Muslim majority, local authorities, um, and all the rest of it. But I suppose to link it to the conversation that we're just having here, one of the interesting things is that when when they interview the governors and the, the teachers, um, you know, they did nothing that was against um, kind of educational standards. Mm. And in fact, as far as I recall, you know, within educational policy in the UK, having a religious uh, assembly at the start of the day or kind of adhering to the religion of the majority of 
pupils is part and parcel of school life in the UK. And, you know, I remember going to school and we'd mm. sing Christian hymns every morning, Christmas, Easter, like we, you know, we do, you do all the things and that's within a state that kind of professes to not be attached to the church. And so in, in the schools in Birmingham, all they had done was say, oh, well, you know, the majority of our pupils are Muslim. Wouldn't it be kind of empowering for them to see that reflected in the curricula? And so they simply replaced a lot of those things with, you know, the Muslim equivalent. So let's mm. have a conversation about Islam or let's have a call to prayer, you know, and space to pray. Um, but that obviously because of the, the the war and terror narrative and everything we've discussed today then becomes associated with well this is radicalizing well this is um you know dangerous this is akin to encouraging violence amongst children and so i think that is a really good example actually i'm really glad you brought that up of that kind of double standard that's applied and you know i don't think it's about again bad intentions this is simply like a very structural and, and deeply rooted narrative mm, yeah i mean i suppose it's part of this uh, parallel lives thesis that you talk about the the idea that Muslimness is sort of at odds with Britishness whatever that means yeah uh, and yeah. therefore a cause of concern or alarm um it would be good to yeah talk a little bit about um how all of this also yeah ties up with questions around gender and feminism and sexuality I mean, you mm. mentioned like bans on the niqab and stuff ostensibly on the grounds that it's liberatory for women um yeah but without really any reference to what the women impacted by that want or yeah all the consequences of it for them in terms of you know there seems to be this perverse outcome right often where I think you mentioned in the book how uh, it results in a, a further withdrawal of women who have been affected from public life yeah it links to everything we've already said in the sense that Again, these are narratives you see in the, you know, uh, 1800s, 1700s. And again, these are narratives that justify a lot of intervention because you have this idea that Muslim men oppress Muslim women, you know, whether that's clothes that they wear or that's through anything else. And so, you know, it's only the civilizing, secularizing West that can really save them. And we see that directly today. Um, And I think, yeah, the legislative bans are a really interesting example because, whilst they profess to be kind of, I don't know, upholding certain values or saving Muslim women from um, their religion, absolutely, they push they push people out of public life. But even if you're not directly affected, let's say there's a niqab ban, not a lot of women necessarily wear niqab, but even if you're just a Muslim woman then who's visibly Muslim in other ways, you then are so hyper-visible because you're the topic of, you know, public debate, your existence in the public sphere is a topic of public debate. And obviously this, you know, is very much a contradiction of a lot of liberal feminist narratives around bodily autonomy. You know, if there was any other piece of legislation kind of demarcating what women can and can't wear, I think there'd be a lot of outcry. But when it comes to Muslim women, because we assume that this is the decent, respectable thing to do, um, uh, you know, people might even remember some images that circulate um, was it like 2017, I think, of, you know, a woman, a Muslim woman at the beach in France, and she's surrounded by armed policemen who are, you know, asking her essentially to take off her clothes because she's too covered at the beach. And I just think that's like wild that, you know, you can be a, a security concern or you can be, I don't know, deemed so problematic through the clothes that you wear, when at the same time, one of the kind of liberal feminist tenets is that choosing the clothes that you put on your own body is, you know, a a kind of right that that any autonomous person should have. So there's all of those kind of elements. But I guess the other thing I wanted to bring in when it comes to thinking about that is that those kind of legislative bans are also within the continuum of other ways that that Muslim women are kind of experienced the sharp end of being hyper visible, I suppose. And Mm -hmm. what I mean is that 
whilst it isn't necessarily at any point stated that something like counter-extremism or prevent should directly target Muslim women in any specific way, the ways that it manifests is that, you know, Muslim women who wear hijab and niqab are so associated with Islam are probably the most overrepresented image of Islam that I think we are then hyper-visible in all these places. And one of the testimonies that I use in the book comes from a woman who was talking about when she was getting mental health therapy on the NHS, she wears a niqab and, you know, the, the, the way that immediately that was read as the source of all of her troubles and that she wasn't even able to be heard on her own terms. And so, you know, by virtue of being a Muslim woman, your access to healthcare, to social care, to mental health care is already um, undermined in some ways because of the ways that you're made hypervisible. And, you know, this also translates into the classroom. You know, Muslim women who are students, let's say, um, again, if they're read as Muslim women, the ways that that kind of automatically heightens the scrutiny on what they say and what they don't say. Um, and obviously we had the case of Shamima Begum in the UK who was stripped of her citizenship despite having been a child when she left this country. And, you know, again, had she been uh, a white girl, I'm sure we would have talked about grooming here. We would have talked about the fact that, you know, she was groomed, manipulated, experienced statutory rape if you think about the fact she was 15 but none of the none of this language is used to talk about kind of the, the sexual or gendered violence that she experienced instead because she went to join ISIS as a 15 year old she is the threat she's the one who loses her citizenship and even just the public debates around that the imagery around the way she's represented all of that also then has impacts on visibly Muslim women in the UK because that image is transposed onto us and so there's the heightened scrutiny on young schoolgirls in Bethnal Green in East London in the area where Shamima Begum was from you know are they also prone to becoming radicalized in the way that she was rather than saying actually let's not strip her of her citizenship she is a product of the conditions in which she grew up in uh, you know, I think stripping her of citizenship is a fascinating way of distancing British society's collusion in and real kind of conditioning of her to then go and, and, and join ISIS. Because instead we should be saying, actually, you know, she's just a girl who grew up in London. So what is it about growing up in London as a, as a girl of colour that can create so much isolation that can lead you to feel so um, or be so vulnerable to being groomed? And I think they're the questions that we don't ask because they're the difficult ones and they're the ones that essentially shine a light on on the context in this country but um you know gender is really important to think about when we think about islamophobia because muslim women are so specifically harmed by um, islamophobic narratives and you know even if we just go back to the very beginning of our conversation when it comes to hate crimes you know these very visible verbal or physical attacks it is muslim women who are disproportionately harmed and yet we never talk about that as assault in the way that I think we would talk about sexual assault, even though if someone's clothing is being removed in public by a perpetrator, whether that's, you know, a headscarf or anything else, that's a form of sexual assault. But we never talk about these women as kind of victims of sexual assault because it's just like, oh, it's just, you know, some Muslim woman who's been attacked because of Brexit. And I think thinking about Muslim women's experiences really um, reveals a lot of contradictions in a lot of the application of liberal feminist values. And if we really wanted to centre women's rights or kind of um, a liberatory politic for women, I think looking at Muslim women's experiences of those double standards is a really useful place to start because there's so much that we're unable to access in terms of safety or support just by virtue of being Muslim. You know, and, and another example, and I'll end on this one, I know I'm kind of going down a tangent here, but, you know, thinking about Muslim women who might actually experience, whether it's domestic violence or kind of any of the things that I think we're all assumed to, to experience at the hands of Muslim men. But say you do, let's just say for a second that there's a Muslim woman who does experience domestic violence at the hands of a partner. 
is she supposed to call on state services to intervene in her family when they're also going to deem her, you know, is she a threat? Is she radicalizing her children? Is she a source of suspicion herself? Uh, and in lots of cases, you know, the laws, again, that have come out of terrorism cases have been expanded into even family courts. And that includes people having their children removed on the basis that they're deemed to be radicalizing them. And even if that doesn't happen, the perception of the feeling that that could happen I think makes people really unwilling and fearful to draw on on state services. And so, you know, in the same way that lots of undocumented women, and again, they'll be disproportionately Muslim as well, can't call on state services um, when it comes to interpersonal violence. Mm. Muslim women, I think, are a really useful place for us to start when we want to think about what actually would make women safer in general. Um, And I use that example because I think it shows also how the state colludes with the types of patriarchal violence that sometimes it says that it opposes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what came through reading that whole section of the book and hearing you talk now is, you know, the violence that Muslim women face is usually only viewed as important when it can be attributed to sort of Muslim men and Islam in some way. And actually, yeah, the state sort of purports to care, but usually on an instrumental sort of basis. And I suppose, yeah, we could broaden that out then, you know, to, you know, this instrumentalizing of women to further an Islamophobic agenda. Mm. Uh, You can also see that at play in the way that LGBTQ plus rights are used uh, for sort of nationalist and racist ends as well. I think you use the phrase homo-nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. How how these kind of rights are used as a mirror to reflect or, or, yeah, to further certain agendas. Yeah, I think it's a similar thing in the sense that, I think the British state or, you know, many European states or Western states kind of profess that queer rights are really central to their agendas. But at the same time, if you look at the legislation, if you look at, you know, things like border controls and they have like really specific types of harm that affect, um, you know, queer asylum seekers. And what's interesting, though, is that in the narrative that these states produce, they only associate immigrants and Muslims in particular with homophobia. And I think, you know, I talk in the book about how there was this particular case in the UK where, again, it was focused on Birmingham and schools there. And I think it was because it evoked the Trojan horse scandal. There was this association of those people as being, you know, uh, exceptionally patriarchal, exceptionally homophobic, exceptionally violent and backwards. Um, But in actuality, you know, lots of um, LGBTQ groups, organisations and individuals saying that, you know, this is just dog whistle racism you know like the idea that the only homophobia in society comes from muslims is a really racist deflection of the fact that the state institutes and upholds the violation of queer people's rights you know like i just said at the border or in in any number of other places so again i think it's a way that muslims are used to oh sorry that islamophobia is used to distract divert and and really help the state to not ever be put under scrutiny or held accountable for violence that exists instead we kind of say that muslims are the source of of all violence and particularly violence that's kind of seen as antithetical to liberal values mm. and in that sense you can then justify well you know well then let's stop them coming into this country they're bringing patriarchy with them they're bringing homophobia with them they're bringing whatever else it is with them and so it's a very standard kind of orientalist narrative of the other who is Mm. the opposite to the self and and on that basis we can just kind of justify any number of things that we can say are linked to protecting our values our rights and you have that at the moment with the british values kind of agenda this idea that there's a set of values that are unique to britain that are uniquely liberal uniquely liberating and that muslims are an inherent threat to them so it's everywhere i kind of feel like there's you know you could pick any discourse that is kind of normalized or commonsensical and and see the ways that it it really does interconnect with Islamophobia. Mm. 
we've discussed it already, but let's make it explicit. You know, who are the main beneficiaries then of the production of Islamophobic narratives if, as you kind of have articulated, not just Muslims, but all of us are kind of, you know, threatened by uh, Islamophobia? Yeah. So, yeah, who who benefits? Yeah, I think, I mean, to just, if I say two broad categories, I would say states mm. who do not want to... Um, have dissent so you know you see that across the west where like as we've just explained you know lots of these counter terrorism counter extremism laws basically just dissuade and criminalize protest criminalize you know direct actions activism um, but also you see lots of um, muslim majority states across the world also taking on the benefits of counter-terror legislation, right? Because in a Muslim-majority country, you can say, well, hey, any number of our population are terrorists. You know, you've got protesters just say, well, they're probably extremist-aligned. And because of the kind of broader Islamophobic discourse that you can tap into, then that kind of makes your coercive policies also acceptable by the West standards. So I think it does a lot for states who want to coerce and control populations and kind of up their draconian control um, and then that also works hand in hand, I think, with the second group of beneficiaries who I would categorize as corporations, basically. And one avenue that I try to pick up on, which I think is under kind of looked at really is is news corporations, because I think we forget that news corporations are businesses. And so the production of Islamophobic narratives in the media isn't simply because of a kind of mean trend, but actually because it's really profitable. Um, but secondarily, because of both those things, states and the media, the narratives that they produce, whether that's through policy or it's through kind of imagery or headlines, also really benefit the big money makers who are security industries. So whether that's, you know, some of the examples I use in the book is like G4S, right? Not only do they run some of the detention centers and prisons in the UK, but they also work in defending kind of imperialist pillaging in places like Iraq, where you have military contracting with with companies like that. And then you also have them kind of involved in, yeah, as I just mentioned, deportation of people, again, on the basis of Islamophobic narratives. You have arms companies who are able to make loads of money in selling drones, whether that's the technology for drones or whether it's the intelligence needed, I suppose, like the people, the bodies um, able to kind of control those things. And then you have surveillance technology, you have the taking up across the world of different forms of surveillance. Um, and like I said earlier, that doesn't just mean like physically, you know, cameras or wires, but but actually the research and the logic. And so you see also like masses of funding going into PhDs that focus on surveillance, that focus on counter extremism, focus on radicalization. So I think there's a lot of different avenues. And, and the thing is, these beneficiaries don't work separately. There are often a lot of overlap between them. And I talk in the book about, for example, um, an APPG, an all party parliamentary group that is run by a neoconservative think tank, the Henry Jackson Society, mm. who, you know, again, are funded massively by the same people who donate to, you know, the Tory party, Republican party, and to other um, Islamophobic think tanks. And then in this same APPG, you have the chair of BAE Systems, you know, an arms manufacturing right. company who sell arms to places where wars are justified through Islamophobic narratives. So, you know, there's a lot of overlap. But I suppose the point that I try to make is that these narratives line pockets. They really benefit those whose entire rationale for these industries, you know, the entire rationale for the security industry is that the world is facing the biggest threat it's ever faced, and that's a Muslim threat. And so the more narrative you can produce that kind of uphold that, the more money you can make for the for the technology that you sell in response to that. And then also the research itself can be sold and bought. You know, you have the government paying thousands of pounds to these independent research think tanks, quote unquote independent, um, to produce 
the knowledge or the research that can then justify, you know, their policies. So it's, I think when we talk about things like a security industrial complex, that complex is really a reflection of all those mutually beneficial relations that are deep and complicated and that that include, you know, individuals who are funded by bodies and they're producing narratives at different levels to the news corporations and then they're producing narratives at a different level to the research um, bodies. But I think all of it is linked and all of it definitely benefits a a global military and security industry. Hmm. I think the book is really sort of fantastic at making or laying bare just how sort of structural these questions are. And, you know, it's clear do we need to move our demands beyond calling for sort of better representation in you know the mainstream media or whatever so what are the main i guess conclusions or ideas or actions or anything that you hope people who have read your book uh, will take away from it hmm. well i think something really important to me was that i don't need everybody to read the book and say right i'm going to now be campaigning against islamophobia i think what i actually wanted people to take from this is that in the work that we already do, wherever you're situated, whatever kind of, I don't know, industry or place that you find yourself in, I think because Islamophobia is so broad and so embedded, you know, chances are that that there is a way that your work is kind of either upholding or entwined with some of these security policies, maybe counter-extremism, or maybe just a broader kind of narrative that is Islamophobic. And so I think asking people just to try to denaturalize that you know we talked earlier about language and the importance of, of naming things and so one of the invitations i'm making the book for everybody on a, on a very small and personal scale is is that is kind of raising those questions thinking about the language that we use but then also that you know there are direct demands that we need to make in terms of pieces of legislation we must demand the repeal of prevent we must demand the repeal of secret courts that you know spoke earlier about citizenship removal well most of the cases where it's removed people don't have access to the evidence because the, the, there's the use of secret courts that's something that must be repealed and I think the deeper then demands that build on the back of that and the call that I tried to make is that if we're going to really try to uproot Islamophobia then we also have to take these kinds of logics of resistance to their to their furthest conclusion which means okay well we need to resist any and all racialized preemptive policing and that includes you know any form of stop and search that associates a crime with a particular body and I think for me, you know, the, there was this abolitionist current that I really wanted to tap into with the book. And one of the biggest themes is that if we want to build a safer world, I think on its own terms, counter-extremism, counter-terrorism, all these industries built on the back of Islamophobia have not made us safer. And in fact, I think they reveal in many cases, um, places where people have been made so much less safe. And so I think the other invitation that I'm kind of trying to make through the book is more of a, an imaginative one in terms of, you know, what alternatives might we build to this system? What would happen if we had a fully funded healthcare system, fully funded social services? What would happen if we released everyone from um, immigration detention centers? What would happen if we had, you know, housing that was accessible? What would that actually, perhaps that would deal with a lot of the questions that we put under the banner of security concerns, um, which are actually just questions of people accessing safety and having their needs met and their vulnerabilities dealt with so I think there's a few levels you know the invitation is personally how can you shift the discourse what demands can we actually make in terms of activism and organization and I think there you know earlier you mentioned there's not a lot of organized groups of Muslims who can resist Islamophobia because of the coercion so you know also what about solidarity and alliances here you know what who are the organizations who could be making those claims more loudly and more clearly without facing the same repercussions as Muslims um and then lastly, you know, what are the further demands that we need to make if we're really serious about 
tackling the roots of Islamophobia, which are the same roots that are the roots of all racism, um, you know, that are linked to capitalism and and this broader colonial world system, which has to include, for me, anti-imperialism, that, you know, this this goes beyond simply national boundaries. It's not enough to eradicate Islamophobia within the UK. It has to be bigger than that. So, you know, yeah, I hope there's different levels of invitations there that I make to readers and ultimately something that everybody can do, I hope. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, Simon, thank you so much for what's been a really interesting discussion. As I say, I love the book. I think everyone should, you know, read it, get their hands on a copy. Podcast listeners can get 50% off, which is our standing discount. So you can get that through plutobooks.com and you just use the coupon podcast at the checkout. That was Sahima Manzor Khan on Radicals and Conversation. If you've enjoyed today's show, then don't forget to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform it is you're listening. And of course, please do share the link online as well. We'll be back in May with another episode. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.